Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is New to Two. Hello everybody, my name is Brett Stewart. Joining me for New to Two, two people who have never seen today's movie. Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm well, although I'm familiar with the story uh, as a former English major. Um, but <laughs> yes, I have never seen... Yeah, this. second time I brought this story. Yes, yes. <laughs> we'll yes. have to get to that at, uh, sometime during the uh, during our chat. Yes, absolutely. Uh, wonderful. And David Luzader, how are you? Uh, I'm, doing, I'm doing well. Um you know, I was going to try to come in here sounding all Shakespearean, but that's actually like really hard to do and not sound really dumb trying to do it. So, <laughs> I uh, you're welcome. I forewent it, but uh, uh-huh. happy to be here. Very good. Well, new to two, as the name suggests, means that one host gets an opportunity to pick something that neither of the other two have ever seen before. Uh, I I personally find this to be a very challenging category because, um, and I'm sure you guys encounter this at times as well, uh, between the three of us, we've seen a lot of movies. So it can Mm -hmm. be very hard to find something that the others have not seen. So I pick something that I knew you hadn't seen. It's exclusive to Apple TV Plus, and it just came out in the last year. So I, my, my, my odds were good that you guys had not seen this film before, and you hadn't. And uh, before we get into that, announcing next week's theme, can we just talk about, that's where one host has the opportunity to bring something to the panel that we just really want to talk about. We've never had a chance to bring on the show. It doesn't fit neatly or at all into any of the other categories. And we spun the wheel. And David, one of your picks one, it's going to be 2008's Speed Racer. So be sure to check that out if you'd like to follow along with next week's episode. But this week, we're going to talk about Macbeth again, because I love to bring Macbeth to this show, apparently. Uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth, that came out last year in 2021. Macbeth and Banquo, two generals for King Duncan of Scotland, are returning victorious from the battlefield when they encounter three weird sisters who predict Macbeth will become king and Banquo will be a father to a line of kings. Macbeth, after his wife urges him on, destroys everything he loves to seize and hold power. It is a tale as old as time, and this uh, particular version of it, the reason I picked it, and I wanted to share it with you guys, my love of Shakespeare has been well documented on this podcast. We've done three or four Shakespearean adaptations. Uh, similarly, my love of plays turned movies and how the creatives behind them make the decisions they make to have a fluid adaptation in that regard. Uh, Denzel is in this movie playing Macbeth, and we've seen him now in several other picks similar to this, you know, such as like Fences and that sort of thing. So I really love to see how these creatives bring these to life in a very different medium than on the stage. Uh, this particular version, the reason I wanted to show it to you guys is because it's a Cohen bro movie. <laughs> it's it's only one of them. It's not both of them. It's Joel Cohen is the one behind it. Uh, for those unfamiliar, Joel Cohen has long been the filmmaking expertise behind the duo. He is the one that was often credited as the only director in their early works, and he's the guy that really is behind the camera, has that kind of magic behind the camera that we know and love from Cohen movies. And Ethan Cohen comes from a playwright background. So he, you know, everything you know and love from the Cohen brothers that's been written has been from him. So in separating the two and having just one of them make a movie, 
I thought it was really interesting that the one that is so focused on imagery and cinematography and honing his craft, in light of not having his brother to make a script for him, he he made Shakespeare. You know, <laughs> there's no better there's no better writer. <laughs> yeah, he was like, oh, well, I can't I can't possibly write this myself. Uh, who the Shakespeare? Yeah, I'll do a Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good fallback. It's a really good fallback. If you can't get the guy that wrote a brother where art thou, then at least get Shakespeare. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> I I think that in this medium. It allows Joel Cohen to do what he does best in every possible way. And I saw a critic call this fondly the world's best final film project. And it totally <laughs> is. And I, and, I, and I don't mean that in a degrading way. It is no. something, it's, a, it's a love of the craft that is made sparsely with really great actors and great people involved. Yeah, I feel that. So that's my spiel. That's why I wanted to show you guys Macbeth, the tragedy of Macbeth. Uh, but neither of you have seen it before, so how did you enjoy signing up for Apple TV Plus? <laughs> uh, well, considering I have an iPhone and everything, it was pretty seamless for me. Yeah, there you um, go. Just you know, hit that free trial button, and here we are. Yeah, it was easy enough. Although I already had to uh, unsubscribe today to make sure that I didn't forget and end up. Yeah, I got sure yet another that. subscription service <laughs> that I'm laying out money for. No kidding. I will say that their new adaptation of Slow Horses is excellent. Uh, though this is not an advert for <laughs> Apple TV Plus. Yeah, but are you getting so, paid? I wish we were getting paid by Apple TV Plus. But, and we might be the only podcast talking about this movie for what it's worth. But I, okay, so let's dive into some of the discussion topics. Right off the bat, Nicole, you had called out that it was visually very reminiscent of Lawrence Olivier's Hamlet. I would also say it has bits and pieces of, you know, when prior filmmakers have made Macbeth, most particularly Orson Welles. I think he knew he was fighting for attention against Orson Welles' epic Macbeth, and I think he chose to make this in a very different way where he wasn't trying to best that. But yes, I do see the visual analogy you're making. Do you want to expand upon that for the audience? No, it's just, it's a pretty stark black and white, and the sets are pretty stripped back. Laurence Olivier's version was, it looked like stages, pretty much, but relatively elaborate stages. This looks like the most stripped back staging that's possible, even. This Mm -hmm. looks like something that was put together by a professional company, but put together by a professional company in two weeks, kind of thing on on a, yeah. on a very strict budget yeah. <laughs> this looks like if kanye and kim were your house decorators you know <laughs> just like three pieces of furniture this is not what i would picture if you're told then you shit. have not watched the kardashians on hulu available now no i that, haven't weirdly well, enough I, ha- I have not you're 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 correct <laughs> that, you are correct I, ha- I hate that i just outed myself for having watched that no their entire house is just like stark whites and like stone furniture like, that tells you they that have is, cleaners it, in every day <laughs> yeah yes uh no you're absolutely right this is when i think when you when you when you fondly refer to this as like a film project it is because it is so stripped down in every sense of the word and even things that should be bigger aren't you know like the the castle invasion is not a castle invasion you don't see anyone <laughs> invading you know you barely see the the whole piece with the trees moving. Um, 
McDuff just kind of shows up. Right. <laughs> yeah. It does. It feels like somebody was like, hey, so they said we could use uh, the warehouse, <laughs> but we've only got from three to four fifteen <laughs> on Saturday. So we can't we can't set anything up. <laughs> and then they just went with that. Right, right. They were filming Westworld before we got here. We're going to have to go black and white so you don't see all the colors. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, but he- here's the thing, though. On the flip side of that, I strongly believe, and I think this is to the caliber of the acting in this film, that the acting is strong enough and the performances are strong enough that they're not brought down by the lack of scenery. And more so, I would say that this is the most accessible short of like maybe certain things like Romeo and Juliet. And I, to me personally, I find tragedies a little bit less acceptable, less accessible sometimes. Like I think like Midsummer is a really easy one for beginners and Shakespeare. I know Romeo and Juliet's a tragedy, but that's another one that's fairly accessible. Point being is I don't, I've never found Macbeth incredibly accessible when I was younger. <laughs> no. And this I think is pretty accessible. I think the acting is so good that you can have difficulty with Shakespearean dialogue and have a fairly firm understanding of what is happening and the motivations driving every person. And I think that is in part due to the, the incredible physicality and acting of this. Denzel looks distraught and wrecked from the inside out. And Francis McDormand really looks like a wife you shouldn't listen to. And like all these things are falling into place for the acting pieces that I don't notice how sparse the set is. I, okay. There's so much in that, that I want to poke at, but <laughs> yeah, that was like three discussion topics. So go ahead. But yes, I agree. I actually think it's kind of an advantage that the sets are so basic that it allows yeah. this, this production is clearly about the acting. It's not mm-hmm. about, telling the story in any sort of flashy or elaborate way. It's about letting the acting take center stage, both, you know, literally and figuratively. But Lady Macbeth, a wife you shouldn't listen to. I mean, (laughs) in this instance, no, no, he shouldn't have listened to her. (laughs) But you get the feeling that she's been the backbone holding up his yes whether you want to call him a general or a duke or the thane uh of glams which is ostensibly a governor yeah that she's been really the one making sure everything is solid you know and that agreed Macbeth takes her advice um in almost all things Mm -hmm. and he wouldn't have told her about the prediction if he didn't want her to push him, I don't think. Right. Yeah. That's an interesting interpretation. That's it. That is interesting. But there is this moment where Duncan arrives and uh, <laughs> keeps asking where Macbeth is as if Macbeth isn't the only other physical thing in this courtyard. <laughs> like this pure white courtyard with no furniture and Macbeth standing in the corner watching them. Uh, he's like, where is he? But in any case, when they send Duncan off to dine and Lady Macbeth comes back to Macbeth and he's like, you know, we probably shouldn't do this. I'm do my career's going just fine. Mm-hmm. Like I I got the right years, people like me right now. Like let's not ruin a good thing. And that's when she really pushes him and says, "No, you know, I've never quite tuned into just how belittling and 
emasculating she is to Macbeth when she just is spending an entire section of this play questioning his masculinity and his manhood and his ability to do what needs to be done. It's brutal. Yeah, I mean, she does it several times throughout the throughout the play. You know, she asks him like at the, when he when he runs out of the dinner scene or whatever. She's like, he's like, are you a man? <laughs> yeah, she he's unraveling, and she yeah. is trying to keep this house together, <laughs> but he's not making it easy. And you know, she's got her own stresses. Um, I, I mean, I think Nicole, you, you pull out a, a good point there that like he heard this prophecy and he wants it. Yeah, but in order to get it, he's got to do some stuff that he's not to use the wording of the play here, quote unquote, man enough to do uh, on his own. So, like, yeah, he goes through with all these, like, oh, I'm still having all these doubts, and she's being like, well, don't have these doubts because this is what we said we're going to do, and this is what you're going to do because we're going to be king and queen, and that everything's going to be perfect after that. <laughs> uh, I, I assume is what they're hoping for. No possible problems, except that she creates a monster. So, uh-huh. which is this well, is the yeah. first time I will I will give it this. This is I think you're right, Breton, that this is one of the most accessible versions of both. Shakespeare's tragedies in general and Macbeth in particular in that I had never really gotten the fact that things fall apart because of Macbeth's own actions Mm -hmm. that if he had just stopped with the murder and didn't kill the two Chamberlains that Lady Macbeth was ready to pin it on everything could have been fine. But as it is, once he kills them, then he has to kill someone else. Then he feels like he has to kill Banquo. Then he feels like he has to kill Banquo's child. Then he has to kill Macduff's child and children and wife. And it just builds and builds and builds far beyond what Lady Macbeth had in mind. At least that's the way it's portrayed Mm -hmm. here. And it all comes apart. I'll give bigs up, big ups to Frances McDormand because I've, I've seen Macbeth a couple times on stage and a lot of the times she has played very much as like a conniving, um, pushing him kind of to to do it where like Frances McDormand here does play it as like she is a co-conspirator in this. But like you were saying there, um, Nicole, you know, her plot was like, well, you're going to kill the king and then we're just going to we're going to coast on that. Uh, but then she has to deal with him falling apart and him making crazier and crazier actions. And Frances McDormand does just such a great job of s- that initial setup and then dealing with it. Like when that scene where she's like pulling out some of her own hair, you can't really do that on stage yeah. and make it look realistic. That's like a nice little touch they, they got to do with doing a film. Uh, and I thought it, it did a lot uh, with her portrayal. Yeah, that that's a great point. And when she unravels, you know, when, when when it's her turn to unravel and she's talking to herself and just starts wandering up the stairs and, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden she's talking to herself and she's she's completely, you know, beside herself and, and clearly distressed, and then all of a sudden she turns to the people watching her and talks to them. And it's just it's deeply unsettling. And one thing I thought interesting about this rendition of the of the play is that did you guys get the impression that Cohen shot this to make people think that Ross kills her? Because that's very much how it looks in this movie, is that he follows her, and then the next scene, he comes to Macbeth and says, Lady Macbeth has died. Hmm. It huh. looks like he kills her. 
And that's not the thing. The whole thing is that Lady Macbeth gets killed off stage, right? That she de- commits right. suicide off stage, right? And I was wondering if they were going to show her commit suicide, which would not be like normal Macbeth, which to be fair makes sense because this is a very traditional, at least in my opinion, a very, a very honest and traditional rendition of this. It's, it's very authentic to the source yeah, material. It's, it's, it's a stage. They're, they're, they're filming it as though it were the stage show. Yeah, in fact, the guy that plays Ross is, you know, with like the English, the, like the English theater company, or um, sorry, the factory theater, and uh, a bunch of these people that are not the big names mm. are theater professionals. But I just thought that was very weird. Like he follows her down the hall and then comes back and says she's been killed. It makes it seem like he killed her. Well, this is the first time in any adaptation of Shakespeare that I've really paid any attention to the character of Ross. Right? He's just sort of this filler guy who totally. helps paste the different scenes together with exposition and maybe minor actions. But this time, I spent the entire movie thinking, whose side is this guy on? Exactly. Because for a long time, it seems like he's playing both sides against the middle. And this actor is... Hang on, I have... IMDb right Alex Alex uh, Hassel. Alex Hassel. Alex Hassel. He's 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 great. He's great. He is excellent and it's he's doing so many subtle things, you know, and he can look kind in one moment and conniving 2 seconds later. And so it was very interesting to watch him this time. I didn't see him as killing Lady Macbeth. I think that's still I think she still kills herself in this interpretation. But the thing that I do like, it is, while it is a very, very true to previous stage productions, you're right in that the detail of, you know, her pulling out her own hair lets the performers dial down the performances a little bit. They don't have to be as big. Mm hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Looking at you, Denzel. Yes, yeah. Who has, some, who has some big moments in this in this movie? But a lot of his like scenes alone, kind of talking, are very subdued. Right. Yeah. Yes. At the beginning, I was sort of wondering because of the way he plays it. He plays it as a much weaker willed character than I'm used to seeing from Denzel. Denzel always plays like these iron willed characters you know he knows who he is he knows what he wants you know he does what he thinks is right or what he thinks is right for him or but this one he's so he's waffling so much of the time that it's it was unusual for denzel washington and i wondered a little bit at first if he was maybe miscast because of how he was approaching it. And then by the end of the movie, I said, oh, oh, oh this is genius. Oh, the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, this is a man who isn't always 100% sure of what he's doing, and that's why everything gets out of control. Right. Yeah, I love the late career Denzel Washington decision to just lean into stage adaptations. That <laughs> that's just what he loves, and that's what he did in the '90s, and he wants to do it again. Um, I, I I adore that about him. Uh, I did want to mention an interesting observation from the L.A. Times when when this film came out from their theater column, where they talked about Ross as a character. Just very briefly going back to that, uh, there's one attention grabbing f- figure 
as striking as he is sinister, uh, who seems to be fighting on both sides of the battle between good and evil. The mystery of his identity may have some viewers feeling they need to brush up on their Shakespeare. However, Ross isn't usually considered to be uh, the plum supporting role in Shakespeare's play, at least not compared to Banquo or Macduff. But Cohen invests in the character with diabolical purpose, giving him hand in the machinations that only, that only escalate after Macbeth murderously seizes the throne. Dressed sle- sleekly in black, his goatee walking a fine line between sexy and sociopathic. <laughs> this theater critic's having fun with this. Alex Hassel's Ross moves from the murky periphery of the new film into the center of the action. He's like a shadow version of Macbeth, a political operative cloaked in ambiguity, waiting for his opportunity to pounce. And that's how I read him. is almost like this, this Game of Thrones-esque character in the middle of this who is more than happy to go to the other guy and be like, yeah, he killed your family. It was bad. And they're <laughs> all dead. And it was a really bad death. And then he's also more than happy to, you know, hold on to the other, to Banquo's kid and make sure Banquo's kid doesn't get killed. Uh, all these interesting little interweavings. He's 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 like a oh man. Game of Thrones is so um, worm tail, worm tongue. I I'm, I can't remember who the character is anymore. No, worm tongue's it's, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> no, in worm tails, Harry Potter. Man, Game of Thrones is so far out of our cultural periphery that I don't even remember Are you the character's about name. No, the guy that's friends with the guy that hates Ferris. Littlefinger. <laughs> Peter. Uh, Tyrion. Something. Tyrion or Littlefinger. No, Peter. The guy that marries yeah, into finger. Sansa's house with her aunt. Littlefinger. Yeah. Littlefinger. Yeah, we got there. That. Not Wormtail. Littlefinger. <laughs> He's kind of like the Littlefinger of it all. Good Lord. And, uh, <laughs> man, Game of Thrones. That, that had staying power. Am I right? Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I like how they adjusted that a little bit for that. Um, a couple other discussion topics we have. A new interpretation of the three sisters. Uh, Catherine Hunter yeah. doing an excellent job. You put Nicole. Yeah. yeah, she plays all three. I loved this so much. It was super interesting. I've never seen this done, where it's one actress playing all three, you know, the three weird sisters, the three witches, however you want to call them. And there's this the beautiful shot where they first encounter the sisters, where Banco and Macbeth encounter them, and she's standing at the edge of a pond and there's one person standing in two reflections yeah in the pond yeah, to be all three and it was amazing yeah well and even before then you know she's all alone and she's having this conversation with herself and kind of like changing mm. her voice a little bit like in some of the replies and i thought like oh okay this is how they're right. gonna do it but then they did that shot yeah the three uh, the, the two in the puddle. Yeah, it, it, that was one of the most interesting aspects of this film to me was just the way that those characters were handled. Yeah, and there's this great scene with the, with with her as the three of them, where instead of going the classic route of Macbeth seeks the witches, and they're all hanging out around a cauldron as witches do, and that's when they do their double double boil and bubble or whatever. Instead. They're inside his fortress, right. and they're just chilling on, like, ceiling beams in this giant open atrium where there's this pool of water below that he's sitting in with his feet sitting, in, you know, in inside of it, and they're dropping things from, like, 10, 15 feet above to make this potion in the water below them. It's such a cool visual way of doing it that's very different than what you've normally seen from Macbeth. Right, and they're perched up there like crows. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're they're dressed very much. Yep. The cloaks are very reminiscent of crow's wings. Yeah. 
Yep. <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're harbingers um, of death. They are. Um, I also, a note on the crows, one thing I do like is even though the, the sets look constrained, like you're in a very small area and it's clear that you're often, it almost looks like in this movie, like there's painted backgrounds at times. You know what I mean? Like it looks like they're in a room and not on, on location at times. And it doesn't look like they try to hide it. But for example, things they do with stage effects with the, the fog and the lighting to allow these crows, particularly in the scene following the one Nicole mentioned at the pond, where all of a sudden the crows just burst out of the fog straight at, you know, Macbeth and Banquo. And it's so startling and powerful. And this dark, these stark black crows against a very white fog is really, really intense. And that's what I love about the way Joel Cohen cut this movie. It's shot in black and white. And I think that is so, again, I think this is him having fun with what he does best as a filmmaker, which is being behind the camera and playing with shadows, playing with lighting. Black and white offers some very interesting both opportunities and challenges in that regard. And there are so many scenes in this movie where the shadows are doing the most interesting things. Like when they come to Macbeth and he's in the tent with Banquo and they're talking about how the other Thrawn is now being you know, executed by the king and all of the branches from the trees outside perfectly spindle along the tent in the reflection of the light from inside the tent and you see all these shadows all around them it almost looks like they're in a wood you have to really look for a second to really realize they're even in a tent and he has so much fun with the lighting and the style of this and in doing it in black and white i think it empowered him to do it in a way that was really unique and additionally shooting it in four three you know it's a square uh very unique not something you see often unless it's like Wes Anderson trying to make a point about how symmetrical he can make things. (laughs) But I think it works for a stage play because it forces everything inward. It forces everything to be center stage. Yeah. There's, there's some really interesting use of light uh, here. There's a couple of um, spots that really like stood out to me where, because you know, they, they were so stark in the black and white, like even though, like you said, we're already at four, three, we're already in kind of a constrained form. Like, I think it was, um, I don't remember the exact scene. I'm just remembering the set, but I think it was just Macbeth and Lady Macbeth were having a conversation, but there's like sort of an angled, the, the light is angled and like a, a good portion of the wall behind them is just in complete darkness. It's just like in that blackness and I, everything else is just like white. And I just, I thought some of the stuff they did, yeah, with the staging was incredibly interesting, um, visually. Yeah, Nicole, you mentioned in our in our docket, you know, how do you, how do you pronounce it? Is it chiaroscuro or chiaroscuro? Chiaroscuro. I was somewhat close. It literally means light dark, mm-hmm. but it's usually used in art and film to describe something that's got very strong contrasts between light and dark, which this movie has in spades. It's oh yeah, gorgeously dramatic contrasts and <laughs> yeah. just almost abstract, you know, shapes on the floor caused by light and shadow and the wall. And because of such intense, rich blacks, things sort of appear out of the background subtly, like especially when he does the famous, is this a dagger I see before me handled toward my hand? And it's just the handle of a door in his castle. I love that the way that was done. But from a distance, all he sees yeah. is the glint of the reflection, and it looks like a dagger. It looks like a knife rather than the door handle because everything else is black 
and it's just sort of floating there. And Joel Cohen gets some amazing visuals using this sort of technique. And he also uses, I want to make sure that we credit Bruno Delbanel, the director of photography, uh, who helped to achieve that. Well, good, good job, sir. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and the yeah. set design he plays into it. He actually also did, you'd be interested in this, Brett. He also did Inside Lewin Davis. Oh. Uh, the cinematography. That, that tracks. <laughs> That tracks. <laughs> as well as Amelie and a whole bunch of French films. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting, because Inside Lewin Davis is... We talked about this when we recorded it, but it, it poses a difficulty of making a movie that is exclusively brown and dreary continually interesting. <laughs> very fascinating. I also think the, the architecture of the way the sets are designed lends to it very well, too, because you have these like monument-esque stone columns there's lots of sharp edges in everything designed around the castle it, again it looks like some sort of you know mod museum of contemporary art type thing where everything like is it like, was just hewn yesterday yeah it's, it's very very sharp edges stark you know stark marble and everything just looks very angular and when you're using light in the way he does that allows you to cast very interesting shadows like i love like the little circle he goes into when he talks to the two guys that he sends off to kill Banquo and the sun. And there's so much happening just in that one room because there's pillars surrounding the room and he'll walk from light to dark in the pillars and he goes darker every single time he goes a little bit more mad. And he starts talking about how he, you know, they, they really need to go ice these guys because they're a problem to his candidacy as a longstanding King. Just fantastic work there on that end. Mm-hmm. All righty. Uh, some other discussion topics, uh, David, you actually mentioned this right now. The stripped-down sets are reminiscent of a stage production, almost community theater-like, but they allow for the actors to really fill the space. We've touched on that a little bit already. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've said quite a bit about yeah. that. It's just, uh, yeah, they... Like, community community theater-like, sort of like that, that thing earlier of um, it's the best final film project that someone's done. Like, it's not an <laughs> insult. It is... When you are when you have certain constraints like budget or space or whatever, like you have to get creative, and they're you know this is a showing of they probably didn't have necessarily. I'm sure the budget wasn't huge, but they probably could have thrown a picture up on the wall, but they didn't, and that lack of addition I think added something to the movie. I, I would assume that this movie, from a industry perspective, is take Joel Cohen make something super artsy with very well-known people and please win us Oscars. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> please validate Apple TV films. Uh, did not win any notable Oscars, but was nominated for all of them, obviously. So uh, this, this, I mean, it is an Oscar baity film to the nth degree, but th- that's fine. Like, <laughs> it's great. Well, they should have nominated hair and makeup, at least, just for Brendan Gleeson's, like, hair and beard. You know, they're just, <laughs> yeah. So, oh, yeah, they're just so thick and soft looking and wavy. And it's just like, this is how a king's facial hair should be. Yeah. You know? uh, I, I, yeah, we hadn't even mentioned Brennan Gleason is in this uh, very briefly. But, you know, it's Brennan Gleason, So he's great. Also, Stephen Root is in this movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, um, yeah. The, the porter. Comic relief. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's <laughs> Stephen Root. Doing what only Steven Root can do. Almost unrecognizable. It took me it, a couple It minutes. took me a second. I was like, because like, I've, <laughs> I've been watching a ton of Barry, because Barry's on right now. And I was like, yep. that looks like Steven. That, but that can't, is it? And it was. 
he's one of yeah. the few people doing an accent in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, no one else leans into that. Francis McDormand and Denzel are both just sticking with their American accents. Yeah. Thank God, by the way. Yes. <laughs> I, I was thinking about that halfway through this movie. I'm like, what if Denzel was trying to swing Scottish? Yeah. Like, oh, God. Um, this movie was nominated for, you know, Best Actor for Denzel, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design. Did not win any of them. But interestingly enough, uh, Denzel's 10th nomination for Best Actor, making him the most nominated black actor in Oscar history. Hey, nice. Interesting. Um, He's yeah, getting it for a Shakespeare play. We did it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and and you mentioned here in, in the docket, you know, David, second time Brett has brought us Macbeth. You know, we, we mentioned that, but it is the second time I have, though I would, I would say the last time I brought Macbeth is not as Macbethy. Well, <laughs> Except, I, you, know, you know, it was an adaptation of Macbeth. Throne of Blood is its own flavor, though. It is. That's what I mean. It's like, this is Macbeth. Right. Right. Everyone is dressed in like Scottish. <laughs> this is literally Macbeth. <laughs> like it's, it's it's in the title. Yeah. yeah, right. I did not get the opportunity to bring. Okay, S- side jag. Nobody watched for at least what fifteen weeks. The Northmen because I want to bring another. That probably um, it's okay problem. if you do. I understand. <laughs> I I I want to bring another Shakespeare adaptation, even though it's not. It's what Shakespeare adapted. So, because uh, it is the Norse myth that Hamlet oh. is based off of, ah. and it's really interesting to see what they did with that movie and how Hamlety it gets at times. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, if you're down for like two and a half hours of Alexander Skarsgård screaming at you, I have had that dream before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, we we got out of it, and I was like, "Hey, Claire, do you want to go to dinner?" And she's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> "It's just." It is a violent movie. Um, what, what percentage is he wearing a shirt? Oh, um, none. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he ever wears a shirt. No, no, no. He goes undercover for like 10 minutes and wears a shirt as if it's not very clear who he is. Well, he's movie. wearing a shirt. I'll never recognize him. <laughs> right. Um, with those pecs. Uh, yeah. The Northman. Check it out. Uh, but, but it's on Peacock streaming now, so it'll be easier to get. Uh, but in any case, yeah, you mentioned this is the second time I brought us Macbeth. It's also the second time I brought us Denzel in a film version of a stage show. Listen, that's Denzel's fault because he likes the same things I do. Like, Oh, I see. <laughs> if this dude's going to keep making dated high school classroom adaptations of beloved literature, then I'm going to keep buying tickets. Uh, you know, I love what he does with it. Though you're, you were right so earlier, So you want to watch Clueless is what you're telling me, right? Yes. Oh, yes. No. Ten let's, Things I Hate About watch You. Clueless on this show, please. <laughs> I would love to talk about Clueless. That would be kind of fun to talk about, actually. <laughs> That'd be kind of fun to talk about. We need to add that to Can We Just Talk About. <laughs> Though you mentioned earlier, at Nicole, a very different, uh, very different style in Fences than here. Yes. Yeah. Much, um, much bigger in Fences. A couple other great... Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, Fences, Fences is all about his toxic masculinity and how he how, how dare you threaten how manly he right. is. Right. And this this adaptation is more about Lady Macbeth's toxic masculinity. <laughs> right. Or at least her interpret her toxic interpretation of what masculinity is. You know, this is the first time I've seen, I think, in an adaptation where Lady Macbeth's famous soliloquy, you know, the foul spirits unsex me here and. Mm-hmm. Fill me with something or other. (laughs) I'm I'm very sorry. I can't remember the whole thing. But most interpretations I've seen try to make that like 
sexy, but what she's literally saying is take away my femininity mm-hmm. and make right. me man enough to force Macbeth to do what I want and to do what we need for us to be rulers. Frances McDormand, man. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, she's she is she's just never not amazing. Effortlessly fantastic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> One quick call out as well. Um, and David, you referenced the scene a little bit earlier. Uh, we haven't talked about Banquo's ghost. Oh my God, was I so happy when I first saw this movie and they didn't just do Banquo's ghost in the sense that like, it wasn't like Banquo standing in the corner of the dinner, like ominously, you know, looking at Macbeth. I've seen that done on stage before where like Banquo's just like chilling there as a ghost and it really upsets Macbeth. The fact that it was these really quick cuts of just Banquo, you hear him walking, you hear him walking, he passes with the torch and he passes one more time with the torch and then it's the crow. Yeah, he's, he's fighting a bird. Just enough of the creepy ghost without being dumb and i think Macbeth can very often lean too heavily into the ghost and make it cliche and cheesy mm-hmm. yeah it was it was so, yeah shout out to banquo's ghost uh <laughs> i yeah i did like that scene the way they did that was really good you can't spell banquet without banquo <laughs> wait well no. actually wait hold on <laughs> i can see david doing the mental math is there an owen banquet that's <laughs> what my brain just did <laughs> nicole I'd never thought about um, this line from Macduff until now, where he said, "Where he says, you know, did heaven look on and would not take their part when he talks about his when he learns from Ross that his family has been brutally massacred." Macduff poses the problem of evil. Was Shakespeare an atheist? Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty clear from how irreverent a lot of his work is that he was not a devout man. But yes. this really made me wonder this time if he was a complete unbeliever in that this is the classic problem of evil if God is, I forget exactly how it is, but it's it's basically just, you know, if God's omnipotent, why doesn't he intervene mm-hmm. Right in this sort of thing where the innocents die? Mm. But this is so, it's so beautifully put, you know, did heaven look on and would not take their part? Is it refusing to yeah. intervene in this slaughter? You know, the guy picks up the little boy and, and throws ch- him, him into the fire. <laughs> Straight up yeets him right in there. Yeah. <laughs> he does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, now, now we get to broach the great yeah. topic. Uh, was Shakespeare a real person? Or was it several people? Oh, <laughs> um, well, going back briefly to this, at least in my experience with people of faith, this tends to be one of the hardest hills to climb in that faith, mm-hmm. because you look at the horrible things happening in our world. We don't need to talk about them, but we all know they're really, really, really bad right now. And you have to say to yourself as someone of faith, how does he let that happen? You know, or 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 they, or whatever your whatever whoever your deity is. Um, I don't know if it necessarily means that Shakespeare is an atheist as much as it means that he was, as much as it means that we've been questioning, wrestling with that for as long as for as long as you know uh, we've had organized religion and the belief that there is an omnipotent force that for good in the in the in the world, right? Like. Um, it, it's an interesting question, but I think it's something everyone faces at some point if they have faith or are attempting that faith. 
Or I, th- I think it's right. these philosophical questions that, yeah, we've always, like, why do bad things happen to good people, you know? Uh, right. Oh, I remember now. It's if if God can't intervene, is he omnipotent? And if he can intervene and doesn't, is he worth worshiping? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that yeah that that's gonna so, have yeah. on it there for sure <laughs> email us hi at mgrpodcast.com <laughs> us, if you would like to weigh your in on you know i'm just yeah, i'm summarizing on, i'm just summarizing no, no, i'm not it, gonna it, it, argue no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's one direction or the other it's inter- if you're a believer yeah that's great, and I am seriously, I'm happy for you if you have that and that comforts well, you. Well, no, but I think so. like it's yeah, it's interesting that it gets it gets brought up amidst everything that is happening here within the. the I was going to say the movie, but like within the within the show entirely. That yeah, it's yeah, 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 and I don't think I would have caught on to it as as poignantly as I did if you didn't have Ross being that character playing everyone off each other and going to Macduff and telling Macduff um, this, you know, because also like he's, he kind of like leads him into it. He starts off and he's like, yeah, you know, and everything's, you know, it is what it is. By the way, your family's dead. No, he starts (laughs) out. The guy's like, how is my family? He's like, Fine. They're doing great, they're except uh, for the fact that they are <laughs> they're all, all dead. dead. <laughs> Brutally dead, every single one of them. Right. Yeah. Um, man, I remember being in you know high school or junior high, and just the, the cognitive frustration of like Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and Macduff. And like Shakespeare was not great with naming Malcolm. in some ways. <laughs> and- <laughs> Malcolm, yeah. There's just oh my gosh! I remember this play being a hurdle to to wrap my mind yeah. around. But Nicole, you put. I was just gonna say like oh, you, go you're ahead, running Dave. into that struggle as well as it being in a style of English that we do not even remotely speak. So it's like you're trying to keep track right. of who's doing what and who is who, and it's all like, what are they even saying? Yeah, I, I should have mentioned this at the top of the show, but you know, as someone who has watched a great number of these adaptations, have have seen Macbeth on stage several times. You know, I've read these. I I love Shakespeare. I've read it all. You know, big fan, <laughs> big fan. Uh, ten big out of ten fan. would recommend. Can't wait to get his autograph. Um, yeah, I I did watch this with subtitles, and I think that you were wise to do so if you really want to try to absorb what's going on at times, because it's just one of those things where you're going to miss stuff if you're even if you're fairly intimately familiar with it it's really helpful to get that context when when watching it so should you want to subtitles are very well, helpful and there's so many characters that have like one or two lines of dialogue and that's it uh-huh. yeah mhm <laughs> show up say their thing they're gone or they stand around in the background in a couple other scenes and that's all they get you know like donald bane is one of Duncan King Duncan's sons, and he gets almost nothing to say. <laughs> yeah, but he gets a really cool scene where he rallies them in the forest, but the forest is like really tiny. <laughs> like it almost looks fake. It looks like like fake trees, and then it has them all walking like in a perfect little forest passage. Mm-hmm. You're correct. It's weird looking. Is what I'm getting at. It's it's a weird looking shot. Led by Dudley. <laughs> yeah. That threw me. Um, that that was the one thing that uh, took me out of it for a minute. Is that the person, oh, really? the actor playing Malcolm, played Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter movies? <gasps> that's who that was. That's why he looked so familiar. That's Dudley. Yeah. 
Oh, that, that's, I'm sorry, that's the son I was thinking of. Okay, I, I, I mixed up my sons. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the hair. The hair oh. through you. <laughs> I was wondering, I was like, that. he looked super familiar, and I couldn't remember that's, why. That's a little mind blowing. Right. Wow. All right. Still as entitled as ever. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, what well, right. was his dad murdered? No, I didn't um, think quite so bad in this role. <laughs> no, no, not as bad. Uh, so credit where credit is due. The film version, uh, this film version was the clearest in communicating who each character is and how they are connected to the others. We've touched on this a bit, but I, I kind of want to round us home on that and say that, you know, I think you're right, Nicole. Just the interpersonal relationships, I think Cohen does an excellent job of tying them together on screen in meaningful ways to help you follow it, even if you're not a huge Shakespeare fan or have been exposed to the material beforehand. Right. Like, who's whose side? Who is on whose side? Who's loyal to Macbeth? Who's loyal to Macduff? Who's loyal to Duncan? Who's going off on their own, like Ross, who's you know playing everyone? Um, I think just trying to make sure that he lives through the whole thing. Right. Yep. Because Macbeth has lost it. So, but yeah, this was the first time really that I was able to follow that very clearly. And I've seen a fairly recent version, not just Throne of Blood, but before that, there was a 2015 version of Macbeth. Oh, yeah, yeah. With, um, with Patrick Stewart and Michael uh, Fassbender. No, different one. Michael Fassbender. The Patrick Stewart one was, I think, another stage. Uh, it's Michael Fassbender and uh, Marion uh, Cotillard. Cotillard, yeah. Oh, okay. Understood. Yep. So I watched that. That one, I would not recommend. It is oh, that's a shame. Deathly slow. I wanted to see that. And I mean, I like a slow burn, but this was falling asleep slow. It, 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 it went for the whole runtime of the play <laughs> versus... Yes, it went for the whole runtime, and the music is very sort of slow and uh, grinding in its own right. Um, it's beautiful in its own way, but it's it does not help add life to the piece. So I can't say that I would recommend it, which I'm sad to say because I love Michael Fassbender normally. I think he's a fantastic actor. So I would definitely recommend this one over that. This is honestly one of the... I'm trying to think of how many adaptations I've seen... I would probably recommend this maybe over the Wells one. I don't know that I'd say I'd recommend it over Throne yeah. of Blood because they're just two totally different tones. Oh, mm-hmm. for sure. It's apples and oranges, really, just with the same base story. Yeah. But I, if you were looking, you know, if you're a high school student studying Macbeth and you... The test is tomorrow. <laughs> ...want to make sure you understand it, this really helps a lot, especially if you watch with yeah, subtitles. If you stumble upon our, our podcast in lieu of reading, <laughs> you know, the play, uh, welcome. And uh, if you got another hour and 47 minutes to kill, it's probably easier <laughs> to read the play. I mean, still read the play. It'll be on the quiz. Not that I'm promoting <laughs> that. You should read the play. Yes, well, yes, read, yes. Read the plays you're going uh, through no, so you can yeah. kind of piece together what's going on. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Subtitles are reading the play, right? No. <laughs> um, yeah, other other random shout-out I had a note on was kind of someone new to the, you know, the scene of filmmaking. You know, Moses Ingram shows up as... Lady Macduff. Lady Macduff. Yeah, if you hate her for existing in Star Wars, please unsubscribe to our podcast. Yeah. Because that's like a whole thing now. 
that poor <sighs> woman has just gotten an unending onslaught of racial hate, and she is awesome in Obi Wan. So, and she's good here. The thi- you know? Like so many yeah, of the Inquisitors the are established as ugh, as even being women of color. Ugh, whatever. They hate her because she is uh, angry and doesn't think in logic and does dramatic like things, you know, like the Skywalkers. Oh, my God. Okay. We're going to end the podcast here yeah, before yeah. we just we, turn we, this we'll, into we'll, Obi-Wan. We'll, we'll, we'll shift back. Uh, <laughs> but I, I um, would like to throw in just for not about Star Wars, but because I could go off for quite <laughs> some time about how the fandom doesn't pay any attention to how the star wars universe is put together and its own diversity um is that this is how you do diversity without comment right in this adaptation you know there are many actors of color it's not remarked upon it's not used for contrast you know like People of certain races aren't part of all one family versus... Right, or, or a class or right. something. Right, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. there's people of different colors in each segment of the different houses in the play. And they're just there. Mm-hmm. And they're all doing the Shakespeare, and it's everybody is doing a fantastic job. I can't say that I saw any weak performances here. Yeah, everyone, everyone does a, they, they, even, you know, the small bits, they are doing what they need to do for that role. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's just everything's kind of working together. Yeah, even when Denzel's, Denzel's awesome, you know, um, I'm sorry, what is Denzel's daughter's name? I know she's a very accomplished actress in her own right, but she shows up for a hot minute. This is gonna bother me now. (laughs) I'm trying to pull up the cast here real, real smooth on on air. Oh, very. Olivia Washington? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She shows up just very briefly in this. Yeah, she is. Her role is credited as children's nurse. So does that mean she's sort of like the nanny for Macduff's children? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because the Macbeths do not have children, which is another it's, yeah. reason that you know that Macbeth has lost it is because he's fighting against anyone inheriting right. the kingdom after him, even though he doesn't have any children to pass the right. title on to. He's just like, well, d- nobody else yeah. is going to have well, if I can't, Yeah, well, if I can't have it, no one can. <laughs> right. Let's burn, let's burn down the kingdom. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> That's really the way he goes at the end. Um, any final thoughts? Uh, you know, Nicole, you had mentioned that you'd recommend this as a as a uh, opportunity to dive into Macbeth. Uh, you know, at least from my end, I... I I'm a Shakespeare lover. I really love these adaptations. I love what different people do in different mediums. And I think the the more traditional way that Cohen took this on while utilizing some very compelling casting and directional decisions with the lighting and the cinematography. And we've talked more than anyone has about Ross on any <laughs> Macbeth discussion. He made some very interesting decisions that made this for a refreshing watch. And it's just beautiful. It's some, It's a gorgeous film. Uh, so I would wholeheartedly recommend it. But David, any final thoughts on, um, or, or Nicole, any final thoughts on Macbeth, the tragedy of Macbeth? No, it's 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 very good. It is very artsy. So I don't know that it is going to necessarily be just out and out accessible to like anybody. I think like, yeah, you know, this would be a good one for high school kids who have to read Macbeth to watch. Um, absolutely. But yeah, I don't think it's necessarily... 
you know, yeah, this is this is not the like the mainstream. It is using the the language of the play, but I think the acting performances are fantastic. The set design is super interesting. Um, the cinematography is super interesting. There's a lot of really interesting stuff here, but there are definitely people I know I could not really recommend this to because they just they would fall asleep or turn it off, you know, two minutes in. <laughs> And and that's and that's fine. Oh yeah, like, that's not like a, a dig against them or against this film at all. It is just like it's not going to be for everybody, right? It's not the yeah, most and, accessible in terms of like mass appeal, consumption, yeah. sort of thing. But it is for that you need Bosler. <laughs> oh, it's got a very that distinct movie. visual style. It's very pared down. Even the music, there isn't much music to it. What's here is, of course, as always, more than capably scored by Carter Burwell. It's just a very pared down, but easy to understand version. So if this is something that you've ever struggled with in the past, I would definitely recommend yeah, this. Yes, they, they take out some of the stuff... To, to, they've condensed the story down. It's an hour, uh, actually almost two hours. They don't condense down that much. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Strike that from the record. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I had it in my head that it was shorter than it is. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I will also say, you know, based on what you just said, Nicole, I think there's an element as well where there, there's kind of a lack of great Shakespeare adaptations that like teachers have the opportunity to show in the classroom. There, there's some really good ones. And we've watched some on this podcast and, you know, there's some ones with big names. You have the Merchant of Venice one with, uh, I don't know Joseph Fiennes is in it, but who plays, um, I know Jeremy Irons is in it, but obviously Ooh-ah. Al Pacino. Al Pacino's in it, duh. Uh, you, have the, you have that one, and then you have like the David Tennant, Michael Caine, Hamlet. And like, like you have some of these ones that like teachers show in their classrooms, and there's some great adaptations, but I don't think any of them, I find this to be more acceptable, more accessible as we've talked about. But I find the production value to be a lot better, even though it is sparse. Um, there are some Shakespeare adaptations that have some rough production value. Have either of you seen The Last King of Scotland? No. That's uh, with Forrest Whitaker? Yes. Yeah, and James McAvoy. I have not seen... Yeah, I have not seen all of it. Okay. And then there's another adaptation I know of that I haven't seen called Scotland, Pennsylvania. I haven't seen that either. That's a, a loose adaptation of Macbeth. I might look into those at some point. Interesting. Okay. Because, like, I've seen, for example, there's there's an Indian adaptation of Hamlet called Hader Hmm. that is very good. Very, very, very good. Among the best. I know they had that The King movie a while back on Netflix that was, you know, playing with, what was it, Henry the... Fifth? Oh, okay. Timothy Chalamet. Yes. So, yeah, there there are... Yeah, with Timothy Chalamet and um, I think Batman's in that one. Robert Pattinson? Yes. <laughs> At least he's Batman now, and I recall, and he, that's a big step up. So, uh, yeah, I'm po- my point is is that I feel like there is a lack of really, really strong productions at times that are accessible to an audience, and even though it is artsy, I feel like you could show this in a classroom and keep kids interested longer than trying to show them whatever the hell Boz Lerman made. Hopefully. I'm sorry I hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty dumb. You can write us. Hi at mgrpodcast.com. It's not for everybody. <laughs> yeah. They die on like a mini golf course. <laughs> as as Shakespeare. It's not as for everybody. The church that Romeo and Juliet die in literally looks like a mini golf course with all the neon. Listen, okay. if you read, if you really read Romeo and Juliet, you know, it's there. <laughs> it's in there. 
in its context, he was he was writing, you know, pop stuff for lower oh, class yeah. audiences. He was writing about two stupid teenagers who are 14 years old yeah. being like, we're so in love. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yep, absolutely. All right, guys. Well, <laughs> uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth, check it out exclusively on Apple TV. Hopefully, you know, in the distant future, they will remove the exclusivity so you don't have to have Apple TV, but you do unfortunately have to have it now. Uh, a reminder, next week is a Can We Just Talk About, and it's going to be 2008's Speed Racer, so check that out. But let's go around the horn, An- Nicole. Another Shakespearean adaptation. Uh. <laughs> a classic, well-known. Uh classic classic literature uh nicole davis where can people find you online you can find me at nicole underscore davis on letterboxd very good and what about you david people can find me dav luz that is d-a-v-l-u-z twitter and instagram find me there very good you can find me on twitter uh at hi wait no (laughs) that's our email you can find me on twitter at i'm brett no not i am i am brett stewart Clearly, guys, it's been, I was sick a week, and then I was out a week, and awesome Phil Rude was here. It's been a hot minute. I forgot my own Twitter. It's <laughs> I am Brett Stewart. And I have a feeling, I'll, I'll tell the audience this, you know, I'm, I'm getting married here in, in a couple weeks, and I would predict that we might have some more awesome guests just like Phil popping in here and there as I continue to kind of figure out what's going on with that. Yeah, Brett's going to be busy. It's, it's kind of a busy time, but here's the thing. Post-honeymoon, I will have run out of time off and other things, so I'll be right here where you need me. But in the meantime, we will be with you, myself included, next week for Speed Racer. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.